0: Experienced in these blackouts, blackout stretches of time Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Captain's Log. This is your favorite captain speaking, Jose Valle, Jr., joined by my co-host and favorite first officer, Mason Schrader. Welcome, Mason. How are you on this fantastic podcast day?
1: Oh, I'm I'm loving it, Jose. I'm crushing things right now.
0: Well, Mason, I, I'm glad that you are. Uh, for, for our audio listeners, Mason is just looking the full, the most dirtbag summer look that he's I, ever had.
1: I, For the first time in my life, I dyed my hair at home, and I did it pink. It's um, true. I called him while he was doing it. My lovely Face girlfriend helped me. She was amazing. Uh, but right now, uh, I am wearing a tank top, mm-hmm. a women's tank top from Target, mm-hmm. and uh, it's hot. It's like. It's like it's Iowa hot, so it's like right, yeah. seventy degrees. And mm-hmm. I don't, I don't have a. Care it's actually in the world. cold right now here, which I've, is
0: fantastic. I love climate change.
1: I've got my tiniest shorts on right now.
0: I did see the shorts when he stood up. I can confirm they are the tiniest shorts. Yep.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm crushing uh, it in a good way though. Yeah.
0: Um. Anyway, well, Mason, I hope that today embracing the dirtbagness of all, yeah, doesn't stop you. From diving right back into the story of your pal, I believe, uh, cult leader, pedophile, white supremacist, I'm sorry, all around shitbag, <laughs> Herbal Baron. That's your your pal. Your family has direct ties to him. Is that correct?
1: Okay, all right. Look, I'll admit, this is twice I'll let I've you, made this joke. I'll let you besmirch me, but do not drag the my family name into this. They are okay, good people. Okay. They don't okay. deserve to be. Uh, and also, just because I don't agree with taxes
0: oh whoa no just because I don't agree that the
1: federal taxes doesn't mean that I'm friends with pedophiles okay
0: this is true this is true you should also say you're not friends with white supremacists because I did say he was a white supremacist. I'm not
1: friends with pedophiles, Jose. Look, oh. I live in rural Iowa. I'm this is true. sure there's one person that I'm like, this ah, he true. seems nice and that actually is a white
0: supremacist. Well, that was me in Utah. We're just growing up with people and being like, I love my friend. And then Trump was running and they were all like, I don't think you and your family should be here. And I yeah. was like, when did this happen? Yeah, <laughs> I was just at your house for dinner last week. I'm like, yeah.
1: what? I'm, the only reason I dye my hair, get piercings and tattoos, is so I people stop seeing me and it's immediately like, that guy's a racist.
0: Now which is what I thought when I first met Mason. Right. Because he made a joke and I didn't know his joking humor. We don't have to get into that. That's a whole different podcast. Black
1: people invented rock and roll. The joke oh, was that yes. they didn't. That was it.
0: Well, the joke was, it doesn't matter.
1: It doesn't matter. (laughs) It doesn't matter. I'm not a racist. It really
0: was pretty tame. I was just like, wait a second. I get it. So anyway, today we are picking up right where we left off and looking uh, at the murderous rampage that Ervil's cult went on and the eventual fall of Ervil and the Church of the Lamb of God. Let's dive in, Mason, to part five, Cinco. When we last left Ervil... He had begun his blood atonement campaign by ordering the attack on Los Molinos, inspiring the murder of Noemi Sarate, and ordering the assassinations of Bob Simons and Dean Vest. He found himself in jail, only to be released once more, and now a free man once again, he geared up to take blood atonement to the next level. Oh, good. Yes, because you know how everyone was like, man, I like blood atonement, but it hasn't been taken to the next level.
1: Yeah, I like when you murder someone and then you're like... Look, I know I murdered that person, but I'm about but to take a murder <laughs> to the next level.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, it's just, he's doing a Steve Jobs like like panel and he's like introducing the Church of Lamb, Church of the Lamb of God's next uh, phase, murder two. <gasps> Woo! Woo! Yeah!
1: Yeah! <laughs> yeah, fuck yeah, kill them, kill them all!
0: Now that he had been released, Ervil came up with a new financial scheme. Get a load of this, Mason. He was going to create a nationwide chain of auto salvage yards and appliance repair shops, which they already had. Uh One of each in Denver, right? Right. They would then use the profits from these businesses to purchase a bank. Then hundreds of banks thus gaining economic control of the country, and the country would have to fall to their knees and do as Ervil asks. And we joke about that, and we will laugh, I'm sure, now. But that's just how America's run now. Well, I
1: mean, so...
0: <laughs> Except his plan was literally just <laughs> missing a thousand steps.
1: Their problem was not being born with enough money. Yes. Otherwise, solid plan that would have worked great.
0: I if, laughed when if, I first wrote it, and then I sat and thought about it for ten yeah. minutes, and then I was real sad because I was like, "Oh wait, that's the country now." Yeah, that's that's how it works now.
1: Yeah, that's all you have to do. It's just harder to buy banks than this guy thinks it is.
0: When you when your family hasn't had money for a thousand years, I don't know.
1: Yeah, something like yeah. that. Look, as a white man, the fact that I can't just buy a bank now means that white privilege. That was
0: I was I was exist. real bummed when I realize that mason was one of those white people that doesn't have a bunch of like familial rich privilege i was like oh yeah man, i chose the wrong wagon to hitch i know I,
1: if i could the only wrong be
0: donkey to hitch my wagon to.
1: all right well i don't think you're allowed to call us donkeys <laughs> that seems actually it's you vaguely. know what it's fair that's fine if only i
0: was kid rock <laughs>
1: he was born with a million dollars he was born yeah. to a millionaire yeah people don't Carson. talk about that or Tucker Carlson. Uh, hey,
0: Tucker Carlson is Tucker Carlson the, lost the, the his heir job, to Jose. a TV... Let's not talk about that. <laughs> I know. It's a period of mourning, everybody. Please no more Tucker Carlson impressions for the next couple of months, all right? Please. Let him grieve. Uh, so anyway, to achieve this goal, he had his disciples spread across the United States, and the shops were established in half a dozen cities. So kudos to him on getting it off the ground, I suppose.
1: But uh, um, well, kudos to him in the sense that like, generally when you decentralize a cult... It falls apart.
0: Yes. Which, and yes. I'm
1: sure this cult is about to fall apart based on where we're at. But the fact that he was able to send people all over the country mm-hmm. and not have it immediately dissolve is a legitimate. Uh, yeah. Let me say, let me backtrack a little bit. It's not a legitimate cool thing, but like it's impressive it's cool. from the sense of what cults <laughs> normally yes, do. Which is
0: what's this going to be hard about this episode. Is, is there's a lot of times where I'm, I may compliment certain things, but I don't mean it because I'm like, that's cool. I just mean like, that's impressive in this sense. You Earl know what I mean?
1: LeBaron is very good at being terrible.
0: We've talked about this. Yeah, we've yeah. talked the whole series that bad man, but anyway. Mm-hmm. With the main store in Dallas, uh, Texas being the headquarters, by 1977, most of the cult members still in Denver had made the move to Dallas, and Dallas now became the central hub for the Church of the Lamb of God. One of the people who made the move to Dallas was Rebecca Chinoweth, the third daughter of Ervil LeBaron with his first wife, Delphina, and the uh, uh, the wife of Vic Chinoweth, who was the financial patron of the the cult. Right. Rebecca had helped her mother raise her younger siblings after Ervil had virtually abandoned the family in the early seventies. By all accounts, Rebecca was a happy and kind spirited person. But in 1975, when Victor Chinowith had joined the cult, Ervil realized he needed to do something to keep his new financial patron satisfied. And so, 15-year-old Rebecca was given to Vic as his second wife. Thus, the happy and kind-spirited Rebecca began to fade away. Vic seemed to only be interested in the young girl for sex, virtually ignoring her for all other aspects, preferring the company of Nancy, his first wife who was equally cold and abusive towards Rebecca, who she despised for her more attractive looks. But it seems that Rebecca didn't just inherit her parents' looks, but also their mental illness. She was said to have bouts of depression and violent temper tantrums. Now,
1: this is, a, this is a 15-year-old girl that was sold to an old man. Yes. For, right, so, like, that seems... Well,
0: Vic was in his late 20s, early 30s, but still.
1: Yeah, I'm going to stand by it. It, So this was a 15-year-old girl sold to an adult, um, basically for sex, uh, in return for money for a cult. I would assume depression is a pretty reasonable expectation.
0: Yeah. So she uh, began to shoplift and binge food, getting up to 160 pounds, uh, which is not fat Uh, by any means. But it was just a, for her... Sure. Uh, for, like how okay. she had started, she for her to get to that weight, it was like a noticeable, unhealthy weight increase. I suppose. Uh, I guess. Well, only... also
1: as a fifteen-year-old, I suppose yes. one hundred sixty-five sixty pounds is I wish more was 160 than sixty pounds, man. Let me tell you. I was. That's what I wrestled my freshman year of high
0: school. Hmm. Yeah. Damn. I know. Which. So this only in turn her weight gain led to more abuse from Vic, who called her lazy, fat, and ugly. Cool. Nah, super sick. In the summer of 1975, I Don't however, you,
1: fellas, don't you hate it when your child bride gains a bunch of weight and becomes a fatty? Ugh, am I right? Jesus Christ. Uh,
0: in the summer of 1975- I'm sure uh, that's, me, a, that's me, an actual I podcast like quote.
1: To, i just like to read Andrew to the- Andrew Tate's podcast, maybe. I just want to read to the listeners real quick the text that I got from you today that said- uh (laughs) very excited for today's episode (laughs) a lot goes down and i responded with oh good i'm excited although i'm guessing it's not gonna be fun things that happen and you said well not really and then within 10 minutes you're like this 15 year old started got married to a grown-up
0: so yeah a lot is going down. Yeah. So in the summer of 1975, however, things sort of turned around for Rebecca as she discovered she was pregnant with Victor's child. She hoped this would bring her love and attention from her husband, but she didn't stop and think about the family that she had married into, a family in which women were more than happy to take the children of their sister wives as their own, as no as um, Thelma, uh, Vic's mother, did with Noemi's children after Noemi was killed. Something that Rebecca's sister Alicia, uh, or Alicia, uh, they're Hispanic, so I think it's Alicia, uh, discovered after visiting the Chinueth home and chatting with Nancy about Rebecca's baby, only to have Nancy snap at her, saying,
1: "There's no way, or sorry, that's my baby. There's no way Becky's gonna get that baby. It's mine."
0: I I, I imagine she did that snap, like the mm. you know. That's the ba- my <laughs>
1: baby. That's my baby.
0: Yeah. The baby was a boy, and Rebecca named him Victor Jr. And sure enough, as Alicia had feared, the baby was wrestled from Rebecca, and Nancy raised it as her own, with Rebecca being relegated to babysitter. This only served to inflate Rebecca's mental health and her weight. She reached 200 pounds, and by early 1977, Victor and Nancy had enough and sent her to Dallas to join the rest of the cult. There, Rebecca discovered she was pregnant with Vic's second child. Afraid that this child would also be taken from her, she made a plan to be reunited with her son, escape the colt, and return to Mexico to raise her children alone. Yet, despite her pleas to Irvell, she was ignored. In her bitterness, Rebecca began to lash out and threatened to go to the authorities with the information that she knew unless she was given Victor Jr. back. This led to many in the cult keeping a close eye on her and complaining to Ervil. Perhaps Rebecca thought that her status as Ervil's daughter granted her some sort of immunity or protection, but she was sorely mistaken. See, after numerous complaints from those in Dallas and his financial patron in Denver, Ervil received another revelation from God. This one involved his 17-year-old daughter. One April afternoon, Rebecca was told her dream had been answered. Ervil agreed to let her collect Victor Jr. and return to Mexico for a visit. She was told to pack her things, and when the time came, Eddie Marston and Duane uh, Chinoweth would take her to the airport. Rebecca would tell her 14-year-old brother Isaac the news and confided in him that she was going to find a safe place to raise her kids and be free of their father's cult forever. But Ervil had given Eddie and Duane different instructions. They were to give Rebecca a one way ticket. While the exact date is not known, we know it occurred one morning in mid April. Duane climbed, and, uh, climbed into Ervil's new 77 Green LTD, with Eddie riding shotgun. At his feet, he had a coil of rope. Rebecca, ecstatic about her trip, sat in the back with her luggage. After they reached an isolated spot outside of Dallas, Duane pulled the car off the road. Both he and Eddie climbed into the back seat on either side of the pregnant girl, and Duane held her down while Eddie wrapped the rope around her throat and pulled hard. Rebecca struggled, kicking and thrashing violently. Eddie was not apparently strong enough to finish the deed and had Duane take some of the rope ends. Both men pulled hard, and she gradually stopped resisting. The seventeen year old went limp, as blood streamed from her mouth. The duo then threw her lifeless body in the trunk and drove back to Dallas. The most disgusting part comes next, and honestly to me just shows how truly vile and detached of a man Ervil LeBaron was. The next morning, Ervil pulled into the parking lot of Budget Appliances in his LTD and greeted Lloyd Sullivan. As they chatted, Lloyd noticed that the back of the car was riding lower than usual. He brought this up to Ervil, who simply said,
1: I wonder if Rebecca's in the trunk.
0: He then handed the keys to Lloyd, who opened the trunk a few inches, only to be met with Rebecca's lifeless corpse.
1: I just want to say, it's times like this that I wish I'd picked less cartoony voices for the characters.
0: Yeah, in, 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 in retrospect.
1: Well, no one told me this was going to happen.
0: This is true.
1: <laughs> uh, this, is, uh, <clears throat> this is upsetting. This is so fucked up. I Dried, don't... Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Dried blood caked around her mouth. Ervil then took the keys, closed the trunk, and drove off. He drove to Thelma Chinnawith's house, where he had Eddie and Dwayne take his car to Oklahoma to dispose of the body. I just, like, imagine a friend of yours, like, which, like, you're, I mean, you're in this cult, and Lloyd had Bob killed or whatever, but I just mean, like, you're not in this cult. And your friend pulls up, and you're like, hey, man, your your car's a little low, and he's like, I wonder if it's my dead daughter. And you're like, what? And then he's like, yeah, open the trunk. And then you're just met with that?
1: Yeah, like, I can't imagine. Even,
0: even, I, and again, remember, Lloyd was the same guy that was like, "Hey, I don't know, if we have to kill Bob Simons."
1: Even as a person who knows that this kilt has ki- uh, this cult has killed people, to see a man's own daughter in the back of his trunk seems yeah. like that's a that's a big step, I'd say. Yeah.
0: So. On their way to Oklahoma, the duo made several stops at convenience stores along the way to buy bags of ice for the body, and then when they found a suitable location, they erected a blue tent with the floor removed and set to work digging a grave. They placed the body in the grave under the cover of night. The dirt was was tamped down and covered with fallen branches. Her body was never found. When the two men returned, Ervil was furious with them as there were splotches of Rebecca's blood on the floor mats and Oklahoma mud on the tires. And remember, Ervil is an incredibly paranoid man, so he he lectured them on the importance of being thorough after the scare with Dean's blood on Vonda's shoes. He told them,
1: That's inexcusable. It's just stupidity. We can't have any more of it.
0: Convinced that investigators would determine the mud was from Oklahoma, not Texas, So he had the wheels replaced and burned the floor mats himself, but at the end, it wouldn't be enough, and a few months later, he just had Dan Jordan sell the car and replace it with an exact replica. Cool. Very fun.
1: Uh, What? Uh What? (laughs) <laughs> yes i don't on. understand the so was the exact replica was that because he just loved the car he just or? loved
0: that car oh and so god he was that's real mad that i was to,
1: wondering if it was like maybe he thought no, like, it wasn't like well a, that way they won't know that i got it was rid just because he was it like was, i love that car it was just because he
0: loved that car <laughs> yeah which you know ltds were nice they're they're like what you fit th- your standard like uh, Jose, long car, Jose,
1: you know we're talking about a man who just murdered his daughter and buried her in the (laughs) desert. The fact that he had so much loyalty to his car that he got another one seems...
0: Just saying it's a nice car. Not super consistent with his whole thing. You're right, you're right. Ervil's problems were far from over, Mason. There was a growing discontent among the cult. As Ervil had made a prophecy that the other churches would bow to them by 1977, May 3rd, to be exact. But by April of 77, there were little signs that the other Mormon churches would bow down. Even those closest to him were growing restless, with Lloyd Sullivan, Ervil's number four, being chief among them. So, on April 20th, Ervil finally acted. He called a meeting at Thelma Chinoweth's home, something that he did at least three times a week, but this one seemed to be more important, as Victor Chinoweth had made the flight out from Denver. After the usual religious service, Ervil ordered the children out of the room and began to relay his announcement.
1: There is going to be a great thing coming down in Salt Lake City. People in the church have to be prepared for it. It's going to be a military emergency.
0: And then that's a cut to a clip of the, the Among Us guys calling an emergency meeting. And <laughs>
1: Jose, we're not that much of a Gen Z that we can make that joke. Okay, sorry. Among Us. I played Among Us. I never have played Among Us.
0: When the imposter is sus. That
1: was from Dun-dun. like, that, you That's just from did like a seven years from like so long ago.
0: Well, that aged us instantly. And everyone Not knows us.
1: I didn't do it. You did it. I didn't make us. that joke.
0: Mason wrote this joke, guys.
1: Oh, fuck. You're younger than me. Get your shit together.
0: He then turned to Don Sullivan and asked him to pick out two men to go along with him on a special mission. Don chose John Sullivan, his cousin, and Eddie Marston. With this strike team decided, Ervil explained the mission. Ervil dug into his old playbook and decided to lure Verlin, his brother, and the leader of the firstborn church, out with a funeral. Instead of Rhea Coons, Verlin's mother-in-law, this time the victim was fellow fundamentalist church leader and Rhea's brother, Rulon C. Allred. Rulon was the head of the Apostolic United Brethren, a Mormon fundamentalist group with three thousand followers in chapters throughout the Western United States and Mexico. There are he,
1: so many of these fucking groups. There's so
0: many there's of these so bastards. Many. Even today, there's so many of them. The, out there.
1: There's so many people to claim that what is it, it's the the one the mighty, one mighty and, and, strong. and strong. Like that's. Uh, and this is a thing we Jose and I talked about. I've been watching Under the Banner of Heaven. Read the book, whatever. But those are the like this was comp- uh, Mormon cult completely separate of the guys that we're talking about right now, whose whole thing was also. Claiming that they were the one, the mighty, one and strong. mighty and strong—it's so the fact that <laughs> yeah. so many people—and I'm not trying to throw a bunch of shit on Mormonism here in the sense that, like, look, Christianity has also done their amount of insane amount of cults and shit. But yeah. seriously, find a new take.
0: Yeah, I mean, you said it. That's—I don't even have to add anything to it. I'm um, 100. Uh, so Rulon had mainly ignored Ervil's threats to him. And his church and considered Ervil a lunatic. He was used to the LeBaron's having a different brother claim the mantle of, of the one mighty and strong. Again, they were a part of his church for a while after uh, 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 Ben, was Ben the first one? Yeah, after Ben lost his mind, uh-huh. they all joined his church for a while. And then Joel was like, actually. And then so they had, you know, that. But, but Verlin and, and Rulon stayed on good terms. Ervil despised Rulon, though. Okay. Er, so, yeah, like I said, he was friendly with Verlin, despite the fact that they both headed rival fundamentalist groups. This went back to Rulon's day as a fugitive in Mexico from a cohabitation charge in Utah, where he actually spent some time in Colonial Aberrant. <clears throat> it also helped that two of Verlin's wives, Charlotte and Rhea, were Rulon's nieces. This
1: is so but, fucking confusing.
0: Yeah, so the Ria Coons is, is Verlin's mother-in-law, but she had a daughter named Rhea. And a daughter named Charlotte, who were both Verlin's wives. But before Verlin could be lured out, Ruan actually had to die. And God had a plan for that, Mason. Ervil told his congregation.
1: The Lord wants the two prettiest women to do this one.
0: I imagine he's saying like that, like, the Lord wants the two prettiest women to do this one. And everyone's like, ooh. And he's like pointing around like, oh, ladies.
1: Who could it be? (laughs) <laughs> who's
0: the two prettiest women
1: that's gonna get a murder a man murder a man <laughs> like Fuck you. me jose this is insane
0: so he then asked for nominations someone suggested ervil's 21 year old daughter lillian a sister of rebecca but for some unknown reason he ignored the nomination and put forward the name of his 13th wife uh 18 year old rena Chinowitz.
1: when you say for some unknown uh, reason so Anderson, uh, do you mean of, that in a sense of you don't we, truly don't know, or it was just because don't he didn't because want his daughter to go to jail for murder? No, because
0: no, because I don't think he cared enough about his family. Like that's that. true. He did well, already murder thing. a Anderson, daughter. Anderson. Anderson spends like a, a couple of pages postulating on this because he's like, Anderson points out that he's like, maybe it's because he had killed Rebecca and he was feeling some sort of remorse that he was like. I don't want to put another child in harm's way, but he, at the same time, he's like, he's never cared enough about mm, this. Like, okay. he's never yeah, given yeah. a shit. He uses his children as just soldiers Plans. and yeah. workers and same thing with his wife. So he's like, so it's weird that... He, he postulates that maybe it is, like, some sort of humanity that Erval Ir- was like, no, but it's also like, why now? Well, it I... just, I don't know.
1: I don't mean to, and this is not to be an armchair psychologist, but... Uh, when you're a narcissist, right? You see your children as extensions of you. Is it yeah. is it possible? It was it wasn't even a humanitarian thing. It was just a narcissistic thing to be like Maybe. my daughter, my mm-hmm. blood isn't gonna do it, but yeah, my wife will. Mm-hmm. I don't know.
0: So so accompanying Rena would be twenty year old Ramona Marston, Eddie's older sister and plural wife of Dan Jordan. The Lord provided Ervil with a meticulous plan. The two HIT squads would venture to Utah together. The women would carry out the rule on HIT with logistical support from the male squad. Once completed, the women would leave Salt Lake City, and the men would spring into action at the funeral. He told the HIT squads that, although the risks were high, the rewards would be their godhood. He also reminded everyone else that they were to be ready for battle, for battle orders at a moment's notice. He ended the meeting with a prayer and a cold warning.
1: Anyone who fails to fulfill their mission will get it right between the eyes. That's not even that's not even veiled. That's just I'm gonna shoot you no. in the head. That's insane. No,
0: no, no. Yeah, it's just a, just straight being like, I'm gonna, you're gonna die. You will die. And then. Ervil disappeared on one of his rambling road trips and then just left the church to go from battle ready to confused and then angry because he's all like, oh, you know, we're going to we're going to get this right. Like, here's a meticulous plan. Here's how we're going to carry it out. Anyway, I'm going to be gone until like the crucial moment, which is like the most like movie thing, you know, like the wise old wizard being like. You, I will train you, and then he's gone until like the let's la- Luke Skywalker in the Last Jedi, <laughs> where well, he right, like doesn't come back until. Rilo it's Ren- more like Ren- if
1: I'm disappeared, I have an uh, an alibi, basically.
0: Yeah, but it, well, anyway, okay. So he returns April twenty ninth, and it's too late because they were supposed to have taken this, th- done this by May third. So it's way too late to do this now. So they went from fucking battle ready. They, everyone was shooting, like they went and practice shooting. They started you know, amassing, and then they're like wait, are we going to do this or not? Like, we don't, he didn't come back to, like, finish ah, explaining it to us.
1: Gotcha, okay.
0: So they just were kind of like, what the fuck? And now everyone's kind of getting upset. So when he comes back on April 29th, he finds Lloyd and his son Don Don Sullivan beyond upset, and they're wanting to confront him. Don would recall, I told Ervil that all he had was something worse than, com- than communism, and I didn't believe in it and that he better start answering some questions pretty fast, or he could write me off. I didn't care what he did with me, but I wasn't going to put up with it anymore. I was mad. I was so mad, I didn't care if he killed me. And this is crucial. Remember this, everyone, because it's the seeds. It's the The, the seeds are being planted of like, hey, maybe this guy isn't as smart as we all think he yeah,
1: is. Yeah, I mean that's less than a seed and more of a full grown no, fucking tree already yeah, that yeah, he's that's like fine fucking yeah. kill me you goddamn psychopath, but I don't think you're God anymore
0: i draw the. i also think that it's funny that he's like i'll do all this other shit but i draw the line of communism if uh, that's yes. not the most <laughs> american shit i've ever heard
1: look i'm fine with one murder i'm fine with two murders i'm fine with three four five and six murders but i draw the line at you just saying something and then leaving that's fucked up <laughs> and that's worse than communism
0: so, Ervil just li- sat there. He listened quietly and then got up from his chair and went to bed, <laughs> which is the most like I respect dad that. thing to do. You know, like I I I can remember many a times that my mom would like get like, you know, like argue with my dad about something. My dad would just be like, hmm, and then just get up and leave. And I was like, I don't think the conversation was over, pal. So many times of me being like, dad, I, re- I really need your like this and this. And then my dad's like. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. going to bed and I'm like
1: yeah, I'm going to bed
0: <laughs> so the next morning Ervil walked out before everyone and told them that the Lord had talked to him last night and was very upset with Don that an outburst <laughs> like that would not be accepted again which I think it's funny that he he's not just straight up like hey I'm mad at you yeah. he's like God is
1: mad at you Which you is don't the, never the... guess I talked to hey, Don you'll never guess I talked to God last night What'd he say? Oh, you see, he's very mad. He's not. Look, Just look, 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 look. I'm cool with you, right? Like I, to- I totally get it. I get where you're coming from. I'd be mad yeah. if I were you. Uh-huh. But God, the big man, Big G. Oh no upstairs he says that if you ever uh run your cunt mouth off like that ever again he said
0: he said cunt mouth
1: yeah he said that he said if he said if you run your cunt mouth off one more time to take a 45 fucking caliber and put it right between your goddamn eyes Okay, well, so, I'm sorry
0: then. I didn't know that. God no, was hey, listening hey, last night. Don,
1: I, Don, dude, you don't have to apologize to me. I'm right there with you. You just have to apologize to the big man.
0: I, I like. You just the, have
1: like, to. You just have to get on your knees, and apologize.
0: Yeah. I like the visual of like Merville going to bed and God's just like, "What a bitch." I know, right? What? Ervil, well, I, dude, like, you what have the... to get control. He cannot talk. Like, I know, he's like right? That, he's like that toxic friend who's like, "Oh my god, you're just gonna let him talk to you like that?" What That's do you mean? I thought he up. had
1: some good points. And I no, made...
0: erval that is fucked up, dude. He cannot oh. talk to you like that. You don't think you is he in charge, erval Did I put him in charge? No. no,
1: no, you didn't. That's fucked up. Do you you Ervil. don't think he's a toxic friend? Do you?
0: Um, well, let me think. Let me let me let me let me go. Yes, bitch. Yes. Oh, well. Okay? Fuck him then. You gotta get fucking control, Erval. Yeah. Because okay? he's gonna walk all over you. Yeah. And that's. Oh. This is just maybe call her daddy. I don't know. I don't listen to that podcast. But it, this is maybe that.
1: I don't know what was
0: that. <laughs> Doesn't matter.
1: I'm an old Doesn't... man, Jose. I don't know what you're talking about. What well, um, I liked it when we made fun of Joe Rogan. <laughs> who's this? Who's this daddy person you're talking about? I don't understand.
0: It's, a, it's so. Uh, it doesn't matter. It's one of those Barstool pod... It,
1: oh, it say no more. Matter. No, I'm familiar it with Barstool. They're fucking trash.
0: I hate them. I hate their founder or whatever his name is. Yeah, it he's sucks.
1: a fucking piece of shit. Unless he gives us money, in which case. Unless
0: it's Captain or Barstool Podcast. I can't remember his case. fucking
1: name. What's his goddamn dumbass oh, name? What is his it's name? It's something. Port Portney. Uh, Portney. Uh, Dan Portney? Portney?
0: I think so. It's
1: something like that
0: fucking Barst- yeah David Portnoy
1: David Portnoy fucking cocksucker yeah he sucks yeah anyway so at this point unless he gets the money question.
0: unless he gives it, unless it becomes Captain's Log a barstool podcast in yep. which case cool
1: yeah
0: At this, <laughs> I really hope that kind of happens for us
1: one of these times it's gotta work right <laughs> is we so just talk shit. shit and then someone's like well they did say if we hard give money hard cut
0: to hard cut to the next episode where we're like we're proud to announce that we are now a Barstool Original Podcast. I
1: just like that we'll an never... An Amazon
0: Original Podcast.
1: No one will ever be able to call us sellouts because we always cover ourselves by saying, That's Fuck that guy way that you do unless it. they give us money.
0: A Tesla Podcast.
1: A Tesla Podcast. <laughs> Jeff Bezos can eat my dick. I hope he dies unless he gives me money in which Hard case... Hard cut to the next Amazon episode. Amazon Original. Subscribe to <laughs> us. Unaudible, uh, you know, where all where where only Captain Log can be found. Audible, uh, you know, it's a great it's a great spot.
0: Anyway, so at this point, people began to question how they would make the May third deadline if it was now April thirtieth. Ervil reassured them all, telling them to remember (laughs) that the Lord always gave a date in advance, only to reveal the real date later on. My fucking God! Which I think, like his his quote was something like, no, "No, remember, God always gives us a fake date, but then He gives us the real one later on." Look, God's a
1: trickster; He likes pranks. God's a prank guy. All right, God he likes. God to watches May third, uh, but that means
0: practical jokers. <laughs>
1: look you everybody has that friend that's like we'll meet at 6 but when you say it's like that means seven that's God when he that's says literally God when he says May 3rd he means like May 15th ish
0: <laughs> so several days later he told Don to meet him in Albuquerque that weekend and bring Rena there Ervil explained that he had des- decided to form a backup squad giving the Lord soldiers three opportunities to kill Verlin Ervil expected Verlin to pass through El Paso and stay with Siegfried Widmer, a first border lieutenant. There, the new hit team would stake out Widmer's home, and if the Salt Lake City squad failed to take out Verlin once and for all, Mark and Duane Chinowith alongside John Sullivan would be part of this squad and they could take him out. So basically, they think he's going to go through this through this guy's house, they're like on his way back, we'll get him if they don't get him over there. Taking John's place in the Utah mission would be my favorite cult member jack strothman newest member now scott anderson does a wonderful examination of every member that is brought up which for time's sake we're gonna skip if and if anything it just serves as another reason you guys should go and read the book but basically all you need to know is that jack is he's dumb he's a dummy he's got big old dumb dumb brain he's a simple man (laughs) he's just a big fucking dumbass. so for instance uh The other cult members used to joke that the tattoo he had on his arm that read Jack was so that he wouldn't forget his own name. (laughs) Um,
1: That's a pretty good bit.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So that should paint a picture of who this guy is in your head. It's not
1: great when cult members are like, you're an idiot.
0: Hey, you're not very smart. They're victims.
1: We should be nicer to the members. Yes, I suppose. Actually, wait. Unless they're the ones who murdered people, in which case, not cool, don't murder people.
0: So w- when they went to him and told him he had to be part of the mission, he was like, "All right, cool." Because he had like a thick Midwestern, which isn't really a Midwestern draw. It was like yeah, he had a thick Midwestern drawl, and he was. But literally, I assure you, not. They were like, "You have to be a part of this murder mission." He was like,
1: "I think, I think I can." All right, if you say so. If he was, he was a Midwest man.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's I from, think from I got Indiana.
1: This. I think I got this one. All right, cool. Sorry, <laughs> hold on.
0: <clears throat> All right, cool. Yeah. Before the attack, Ervil and his son, Arturo, actually ventured to Evanston, Wyoming, where the squads had set up a home base and helped them prepare. They drew maps for the women and reminded them all that once Rulon's funeral was planned, they had to spring into action. Ervil told them,
1: Just go in and do it. Anybody gets in the way. Men, women, children it doesn't make any difference the lord wants this guy beyond anything if you fail in your duty or if you turn away the lord will cause you to be destroyed from the face of the earth
0: which i think this is the most bad shit moment of verval to which i know like los molinos he was like attack all of them but that one was like because they were firstborners in this one he's just saying like anybody anybody yeah. gets in the way Fucking kill them. It does right. not matter. I right. want Verlin dead. Yeah. Men, women, children who have nothing no, to do I with this whole war. I don't war, want Verlin dead.
1: God wants Verlin dead.
0: True. So before the sun rose on May 10th, Ervil and Arturo got up to leave. In the doorway of the room, Ervil told Don Sullivan that he would meet up with him again to give him more money before turning and heading out. But the cult members didn't know it was that their prophet had no intention of stinging around. As soon as he got in the car, he and Arturo made their way south, not stopping until they were safe and sound in Mexico. Once the sun had risen, the Lamb of God set out west toward Salt Lake City on the I-80. They stopped at an abandoned shooting range in the Magna foothills and did a final test of their weapons. Eddie Marston thoughtfully picked up all the spent shells. The five, Don Sullivan, Eddie Marston, Jack Strothman, Ramona Marston, and Rena Chinoweth, Headed to the suburb of Murray. They first stopped at a Deseret Industries, which is an LDS owned version of Goodwill. It's a staple of Utah. They're everywhere. Uh, we always call them DI. We just refer to them as DI because it's Desert Industries. Uh, there they purchased clothing, two women's wigs, and glasses without lenses. Don cool. Sullivan, cool. I remember when everybody did that and I was like, I have actual glasses. Yeah. And everybody was like, I'm cool now because I don't know. And I was like, I can't see. I don't like that you guys are doing this. Yeah. Don Sullivan then took Rena and Ramona on a short tour of the single story brick building located at 133 East, 4800 South Street, home to Allred's, n- and I'm not entirely sure how to say it, naturopathic clinic, uh, which is like one of those and like-
1: naturopathic? naturopathic? Yeah, it means like basically yeah. like
0: all non-medicinal alternatives to-, like to, to, to
1: homeopathic kind of. Yeah. He
0: yeah, was like, he did chiropractor, chiropractor shit and other stuff. So, he pointed out an alley that ran alongside the building. Around noon, the group went to Skaggs Drugstore on State Street for lunch. While at lunch, Rena noticed an oversight. The tags on the station wagon she had borrowed from her father were expired. She thought it would be stupid that, after all their preparation, they would be done in by something so trivial. So, she took the car across the street to be inspected. Which props to her. Because
1: that's normally what gets p- killers get, exactly. caught is I was gonna say. Like wasn't that, Bundy yeah.
0: pulled over for like a broken taillight or something? Yes.
1: Yeah, exactly. And,
0: and they were like, oh, you're a murderer. Cool. Right. Oh, well, yes. they didn't say cool. They were more mad about it. Right. After this, the two teams drove up the street and selected motels. Rena and Ramona stayed at the Lone Pine under the alias Patty Sanders. Don, Eddie, and Jack stayed at the Holiday Motel under the alias of Fred Tompkins. Leaving Jack behind, Don and Eddie drove to Fashion Square Mall. With them in their El Camino, they had a detached ignition system. After a short drive, they found a 1975 Ford in the parking lot, and after a couple of minutes, Don jimmied the door open and installed a new ignition system and drove off in the truck. Pretty smart. Not bad. At 4.30, the hit teams had their final meeting in room 151 of the Holiday Motel. Rina and Ramona were dressed in baggy clothes and wigs. Don assured them that if things went awry, they had a fallback option. He would follow them to Allred's clinic and loop back around while they were inside. If anything went wrong, they could just jump in the back of the El Camino. At 4.37, Rina and Ramona got into the stolen truck. With Don behind them in the El Camino, they drove down 4,800 south and turned into the alley besides the clinic. At 4.43, the two young women entered the clinic. There were a total of eight people still in the building six patients, Allred's wife-slash-assistant Melba, and Allred himself. The two stood in the doorway for a moment before Ramona took a seat next to Richard Bunker, a businessman and friend of Rulon's for 30 years. Renal walked to an open doorway past the receptionist's window, and after a moment, Rulon appeared from a back room. He walked towards Rena, nodded, and then turned right into a small laboratory area. When Rulon stepped out of the room, Rena took the caliber automatic pistol from her pocket and aimed it at him. Without saying a single word, she shot him twice in the chest from point-blank range. Oh my god, no, Rulon screamed as he instinctively raised his hands. Rena began to shoot again, firing all seven bullets into him. She then turned and walked back into the reception room. That was when Richard noticed the gun in Rena's hands, and Ramona stood up from beside him with her gun also in her hand. They both calmly walked out the door. Melba came out of one of the examination rooms and hurried towards the laboratory room. There she found Rulon on his back, his feet fully extended and his arms straight up and vibrating. Blood was spreading across the front of his shirt and spilling onto the floor from a hole in his neck. Richard would then recall, under hypnosis, because apparently this experience was so traumatic to him that he suppressed it, and it wasn't until police later put him under hypnosis uh, that he remembered the details, he remembered that he ran after the girls, only to find them right outside the door, coming back in. And there, he wrestled with them for a moment before Rena pointed her gun at his face. Out of fear, he backed off and ran to a bathroom. But Rena's gun was empty, and so she took Ramona's thirty eight and fired a shot towards Richard's back, missing. But the young women had not come back for Richard. They had returned to make sure the deed was completed and shoot Rulan in the head. Ramona guarded the reception room and Rina made her way to the back where she found Melba, who stared at her for a moment before accepting what would come next and moved out of the way. Rina walked over and stood over Rulon, pointed the gun at his head, and fired again. But incredibly, the bullet missed, narrowly. There, were, It was so close to him that there was gunpowder traces on his cheek from where, how close it had almost struck him. Jesus Christ. Um... It didn't matter, though, because Rulon C. Allred had been mortally wounded. Rena returned to Ramona, and the two left once more. Richard ran to check on Rulon and found Melba kneeling over him. He took his friend's hand as he breathed his last breath. Rulon C. Allred, leader of the Apostolic United Brethren, false prophet, had been blood-atoned for his sin of apostasy in failure to fall in line with the one mighty and strong, Ervil LeBaron. May 10th. Polygamist Rulon Allred was gunned down in his Murray office. Allred was a spiritual leader for several thousand polygamists. Officials considered his murder a religious assassination. When Don circled the block, he found people gathering outside the building and police sirens in the distance. The 75 Ford was gone from the alleyway, so he headed for the rendezvous point at Skaggs. There he found Rena and Ramona with their outer layers and wigs. They had placed them in a brown paper bag, which Don threw in the back of the El Camino. The women told him that the plan had succeeded. Eddie Marston had been babysitting Ramona's infant son who was apparently with them this whole time. Uh, at 4.45... Well, what else are you going to do, Jose? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to get a babysitter these days. It's true. At 4.45, he drove to the rendezvous spot and had the child and the, st- and the station wagon off to the women who drove away from Murray towards the safety of Denver. <clears throat> at 5.30... The three men sat around the television to see the local news broadcast on the death of Allred. They went out to celebrate with a feast of burgers, french fries, and soda. Hell yeah. Yeah. On May 11th, the men got ready to leave Salt Lake City for Evanston, where they would wait for news of Allred's funeral. Eddie made sure to pick up any incriminating evidence and put it all in the brown paper bag that had held the girls' clothes and wigs. On South Main Street, Eddie noticed a dumpster next to a graphics store and tossed the bag inside. They then drove to Wyoming to wait. While in Evanston, the group was staying at a rink-a-dink hotel called Sims Motel. As the, money had, as the money given to them by Ervil was starting to run low, and he had never met up with him again like he said he was going to to give him money, because again, he's hiding in Mexico, even though they don't know that. All right. Don explained to Jack their plan, because <laughs> there was a moment where they were sitting around and Jack just went, wait, why are we going back to Salt Lake City? And they were like, What? He's like, wait, why? Why is it so important that we go back to Utah? And they were like, Are you fucking serious right now? Because
1: we have. Like, to we're here to murder kill these a guys. Second guy.
0: And then he was like, Well, why are we killing them? And they're like,
1: What? Why are you like, here? Like
0: literally explained this to you before he left, and he's like, And then they told him again, and he was like, Oh yeah.
1: Right, 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 right. Yeah, I remember.
0: So no, 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 no.
1: We're, we're gonna murder him because he's. Not I don't don't think Jack is stupid. I think he's just like a normal dude who got caught up in this and is just trying to you know what I mean? He's just like Uh wait, why are we murdering this guy again? Oh Mm -hmm. no oh 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Because he's because he's against our guy and our guy is
0: The right guy? Am I saying this right?
1: Our guy's like the guy, right? And their guy's not the guy. So we have to kill the guy that's not the guy so that our guy can be the guy.
0: Yes. God, Jack, come on.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I guess I'm just stupid.
0: dumb. (laughs) Yeah. Allred's church was on Redwood Road, 15 miles south of Salt Lake City. His funeral would most likely be held there. Their job, upon returning to Salt Lake City, was to steal more pickup trucks. One would be parked at Albertson's grocery store on Redwood Road, roughly two miles down from Allred's church. The second would be driven up to the church. With two El Caminos, the team would have four vehicles to choose from for their escape. Since stealth was not an option for the 30 caliber machine guns, they would enter the funeral with stockings on their heads, concealing their faces, and fan out in search for Verlin. Anyone who got in the way would be gunned down. Jack only had one question for Don. Why were they doing this again? He had entirely, forgotten the entire fucking reason they were there.
1: I'm sorry. Don, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just... So... What are we doing again? <laughs>
0: okay. I'm going to be patient with you, because uh-huh. I understand that this is hard.
1: I appreciate that.
0: We are here to call it Kill the False Prophets... Uh, we already killed one, Rulon. Right. Now we're gonna kill Verlin because he's a false prophet, and he stole Ervil's job at the old church. So we gotta kill him for that. Okay. Because he's the devil.
1: And he's and Verlin's, he's, he's gonna he's be
0: maybe gonna be at the funeral, possibly the funeral Probably. of the guy
1: that the funeral of the guy that we killed. Yes. Right. Yes. Okay.
0: All right. Cool. Now put this fucking stocking on your head and just fucking <laughs> All right. So, he re- so Don patiently reminded Jack of their godly mission, to which I'm sure Jack responded with, "Oh, cool." Cuz he kind of reminds me of Pete Davidson's Chad character from SNL, I don't know if you ever saw yeah. those. So, so this is this is his quote if you um if you want to read it in your Jack voice. This, this is, is a quote from Jack.
1: They was just teaching the wrong thing. The wrong polygamous Group of laws or something like that. I said, "Well, I see," and I agreed with them.
0: So on May 14th, which again is just the most like, this yeah, I guess. Oh yeah, for sure, dude. Oh yeah, I'm a little lost, but fair enough.
1: No, 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 yeah, 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 no, yeah, 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 no. I got you, yeah. No, yeah, 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 no. I got you. So,
0: so on May 14th, the group went into action. They drove towards Salt Lake City with guns under a blanket alongside two ignition systems for 75 Ford, 74 Fords this time. When they arrived in Utah, they learned from the papers that due to the large number of people wanting to attend the funeral, it had been moved to the auditorium of Bingham High School in the town of Riverton. But this, shout out to my Riverton folks, they know who they are. But, they, <laughs> but this did not affect their plans. Uh, Redwood Road ran through Riverton and could still be used for their plan. They once again stayed at the Holiday Motel under the same name of Fred Tompkins, and Jack once again stayed behind while Don and Eddie set out for the Ford pickup trucks. One was stolen from Jack's beauty salon and driven to Albertson's grocery store on Redwood Road. Another disappeared from the Cottonwood Mall, and 90 minutes later it was...
1: Wait, wait, wait. I have a beauty salon?
0: No, Jack, it's a different Jack, damn it. It's a very common name.
1: I'm Jack.
0: This other... Oh, God. Yes, you are, buddy. Yes, you are. Did you
1: steal my truck?
0: No, we stole someone's truck at your beauty salon. Don't worry about it, though.
1: Oh! Hey, look at these keys. (laughs) (laughs) I like the way they jingle.
0: So, So 90 minutes later, the one stolen from Cottonwood Mall was transporting Don and Eddie with Jack in one of the El Caminos following behind. I do kind of like that they're doing crime with El Caminos. I love an El Camino. I'm a big El Camino guy. I
1: would pick if I were doing crime. I'd pick something a little more inconspicuous.
0: At that time, it wasn't in, it wasn't as inconspicuous as conspicuous as it, is, as it is now.
1: Yeah, but like
0: because it's the 70s, a lot of people were sure, driving El Caminos. Sure,
1: but like, there's only one half truck, half car.
0: Yeah, that's why I love El Caminos. <laughs> I, okay, sure, yeah. So just before 2 p.m. The group pulled into an empty parking lot of a Mormon church and moved the guns. Zuko, get out of here, man! And moved the guns into the Ford, uh, with Jack joining the other two inside the truck. They
1: told me I should ride with you because I'm, I'm more integral to the plan, and so so is you guys.
0: <sighs> it's fine, I guess. Get in.
1: Okay, shotgun. <laughs> it's I a mean, truck.
0: It's all shotgun.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I meant the gun.
0: They're machine guns. There's no shotguns, Jack. Oh. <laughs> so Rulon's funeral was just beginning as the group pulled up. In attendance were some 2,600 people. People from every walk of Utah society were there. Fellow polygamists, LDS officials, Patients of his clinic and many Gentile and Mormon friends the doctor had made over the years, such as Verlin M. LeBaron. With Verlin were two were his two chief counselors, Siegfried Widmer and Osmond Jones. All three of them were on Ervil's atonement list, but not just mourners had come to the auditorium that day. Mason, so too had that pesky little press who gathered outside filming and attempting to get interviews for what was looking to be one of the, one of if not the biggest story of the year in utah the police had also shown up not to pay their respects but because they suspected all Ritz killers might show up to the funeral to perhaps claim more victims yay police they were they did a good thing this time
1: yeah that was a yeah good good work there
0: over 50 officers, both in uniform and plain clothes, were dispatched to the event. As Don approached the scene, uh, the mission to get Verlin suddenly seemed impossible. He turned to his companions and told them, There's no way. There's too many people. We don't have a chance. Eddie and Jack remained silent. Don asked the others what they thought, and they just said, We'll follow your lead. Don knew that if they went in there, they would surely be cut down by the police before they could run out of the auditorium. But then again, Ervil had threatened them with being wiped off the face of the earth. So Don made up his mind. They weren't going to do shit, and they were going to leave it to the El Paso group to take him out. They returned to, El, to the El Camino, ditched the truck, returned to the Holiday Motel for their things, and left Utah. But remember, there was still a second squad who were watching Widmer's house in El Paso, After the funeral, they were vigilant, and they stayed on the house for days, but there was absolutely no sign of Verlin, so they, too, threw in the towel and returned to Dallas. Five years of hunting the snake, as they called him, and they had come so close, within 100 yards, only to fail.
1: It does... It more goes on Ervil to think that the best way to murder a man would be to murder a different man and then murder that man. I
0: think Ervil saw a movie and then was like, we should do that.
1: Like, uh, killing someone at a funeral, sure, but not when you gunned him down in public in broad daylight. Killing
0: someone at a funeral for a person who died of natural causes? Sure. Cool. Killing someone that was... Is that that an attendance at a funeral for a guy that you gunned down in a very public way? Yes, yeah. Of course it's going to draw attention.
1: Right.
0: Why are there
1: so many police and news at this funeral for a man
0: we we
1: murdered in broad daylight? Wild.
0: All those involved in the Verlin conspiracy remained on the move for the next couple of months, slowing down anyone investigating Rulon's death just as Ervil had hoped. But there was something happening that Ervil had not thought of about when he fled from Mexico. By fleeing, he had left his lamb to fend for themselves. As they became fugitives, some of the lamb began to loosen their connections to the church and loosened their fears of Ervil's threats, becoming disenchanted in his leadership.
1: When you break up the cult and just decentralize it.
0: It was working for him before. He had broken up the cult he right. had decentralized it, but he was in the same country, and he would travel back and forth. But right? now they're face-to-face. but now they're directly Ervil's,
1: being hunted, though.
0: Ervil's biggest strength was his face-to-face intimidation. Right. Okay. He could show up. You're in New Mexico. You're like, oh, he's in Dallas, and then he shows up the next day in New Mexico, and you're like, holy shit. Okay. Got but now, you. he's just fucking gone because he's hiding because he knows that there's gonna be uh, the blowback from this, and right. that was the weakness there because now that he's not around to intimidate them, everybody's all of a sudden like.
1: Wait a fucking second. Hey, do you think Why that are maybe we scared of this guy? We shouldn't have to be running from the police because of this asshole? Oh, fuck. Why are we here again?
0: I don't even... I, I don't even want to have more than one wife if I'm honest with you. When Don Sullivan returned from Salt Lake City, he found the Dallas chapter in disarray. Ervil cowered in Mexico... Dan Jordan and Victor Chinowith sat comfortably in Denver. And to Don, it seemed that in this moment, when the heat was on them, the leaders of the church had abandoned their flock. Dan, or sorry, Don, felt bitterly betrayed. While he risked his life, Ervil sat safely in another country. While he survived on pocket change and junk food, Dan and Victor lived in luxury, with money hand over fist. He felt duped and quietly slipped away from the Colt, making his way to Kansas City, where his cousin John would join him. Jack, too, had enough and slipped out one night, stole a Colt member's car, and returned to Indiana. Erval didn't care. His mind was focused elsewhere. He raced down to southern Mexico, to the communities outside Mexico City, which which had been under Allred's leadership, and ordered them, to fall in line with a pistol in hand, literally giving a whole speech, just waving a gun in the in the air. Cool. But he found no new converts there. The Mormon fundamentalists no longer found themselves impressed by him. They were just afraid of him. And again, for a cult, it's not just fear that you need to have people stick around. You also need some sort of Like, people have to sort of... They have to be afraid of you, but also be inspired by you. You know what I mean? Because cults always fall apart when it becomes pure fear. No one can rule in pure fear.
1: Right. They have to believe. Yes. They have to believe in something to be afraid of. They can't just be afraid.
0: Now, let's stop and just examine this whole murder mission. Okay? Because we have spent a vast majority of the series discussing that, although Ervil is, by all accounts, a stupid and frankly insane man, he sort of has some criminal prowess or genius if you will. Well, he certainly so had mission,
1: an, an understanding of if you're going to try to murder someone, you should keep yourself as far well, away from it. As and possible. this is what's really
0: interesting. So this mission illustrates to us that his talk of soldiers and military missions, it wasn't just idle chatter as Anderson calls it. The murder in Murray, as Anderson points out, closely resembles textbook guerrilla warfare. He first structured the followers who took part along the lines of a guerrilla strike force, forming a cell structure in which many soldiers took part besides the five who took part as hit squads uh there was also arturo who had filed uh, off the serial numbers on the weapons and bullets ervil who had drawn the maps nancy chinoweth who bought the 38 handgun so there was more than more than the hit squad uh, uh, involved ervil also compartmentalized information as the hit teams drove into salt lake city on may 10th they knew the tasks that they were to perform that day, but not exactly to the dot the tasks of the other members. So mm. information was known by some, but not all was known by all. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: The team also employed hit-and-run tactics used by Garia's, demonstrated by Rina and Ramona's escape from Rulon's clinic and their quick disposal of the disguises, but it doesn't end there. Knowing he would be a suspect in the whole ordeal, given his history with Allred, Ervil threw another wrench in law enforcement's investigation. He crossed, and this is where I, like, again, you know, it's just impressive. I I don't know the right word for it, but anyway. He crossed multiple jurisdictions in his orchestration of the whole ordeal. Given the often strained relationships between different police agencies, this would guarantee the investigation would be slowed down. He held the initial meeting in Texas. Gave the hit team their go ahead in New Mexico, purchased one of the weapons in Colorado, gave specific instructions to the killers in Wyoming, and finally had the murder take place in Utah. But ironically, it was this cleverness, I'm doing quotations here, Mm -hmm. that would prove to be Ervil's downfall as two major factors worked against him. The first was that although his members didn't know everything, they knew some things. Right. And as they grew more and more disillusioned in 1977, they could go to the police and then tell them something that would help their investigation. And secondly, perhaps the most important part, he had left a blood trail in the United States where law enforcement is not nearly as lax as Mexico and where he couldn't just buy judges, which only corporations can do that here. Right. Also... <laughs> so, by- <laughs> let me
1: ask you this real quick. Yeah. I, do you think that Irvel LeBaron was a better murder planner than he was cult leader. Yes. Because what got him caught was not any of his murder plans; it was just the 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 cult dissolving, basically. Right. Yes, I think he's
0: more of a criminal, a better criminal than he is a a criminal being in the sense of a murderer than he is a uh, a um a cult leader.
1: Let yeah. me ask you this, and this is kind of a joke, but also kind of serious. Would he have been the greatest CIA agent of all time? Like, 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 Honestly, head he of might have. CIA? He, he, it he seems really like he seems such like a a that type. That understanding he of how these things just work.
0: Yeah, how did he, yeah, I I really think he would have, you know, in a different life. Yeah, a Pod Dog agrees. Pod Dog in agrees. A dif- in a different life, maybe, yeah. So, by creating. Such a masterpiece, as he referred to it, he ensured that nearly every officer who came across the case would become obsessed with it. Mm. Or as Anderson put it, it is one of the supreme ironies of the LeBaron saga that the very genius Ervil displayed in waging his holy war held the seed of his own destruction. By giving his pursuers the most compelling challenge they would ever face, he ensured his ultimate doom.
1: So, in order to put that into more layman's terms, he basically just made a puzzle. It, it it was like the Zodiac Killer, mm-hmm. where it he was made just such so an intriguing hard to mystery solve. that they
0: yeah. were like, we want to solve this.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Ervil's successful criminal masterpiece was short lived, however. See, around 7 a.m. on May 12th, Bob Torkelson and Oscar Tester, two employees of the graphic store where Eddie had dumped the paper bag, were sifting through the dumpster behind their building for aluminum cans to recycle. Yay, environmentally conscious kings. Hell yeah.
1: In the 70s, that's pretty impressive. Yeah.
0: What they found instead... Well, I mean, they worked at a graphic store, so... makes sense. What they found instead was the paper bag, which contained the reversible blue and white jacket worn by Rena Chinoweth, some empty Pepsi cans, a crumpled Marlboro pack, several slips of paper with maps drawn on them, empty shell casings, a gun box and an expired coupon for Jack in the Box. That was only redeemable in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. The two men took their findings to the police station and gave investigator Paul Forbes the starting point he needed. He went to his brother in the Salt Lake County Attorney's Office, Dick Forbes, and the two set out to trace the serial number on the gun box.
1: What's With him, really crazy is after this, they went on to find, to, to found a magazine together. Forbes, yes, Forbes magazine. magazine,
0: very good. Within hours, the pair discovered that the gun was purchased by Nancy Chinoweth in Denver. Uh, this is because, again, read the book, but just a little bit. Uh, Dick had basically just returned from a like big conference where they like went over how to like track uh, mm. guns or whatever. And so he like just just like fucking, he was fresh in his mind on how to. And within hours, it was Dick is a great investigator. I don't know anything about his personal life. Maybe he was an asshole, but he was good at his job. <laughs> Investigators were well aware of the Chinowitz family uh, connection to Ervil and Rena, and uh, sorry, they were well aware of the family's connection to Ervil. And Rena had already been selected as a suspect by several witnesses because they had shown her picture, and they were like, "Yeah, I think that's the girl who shot him." So police went to Denver, but found no sign of Rena or Nancy. So they observed the calls going out of Victor's home and noticed he called his mother in Dallas. So. They went to Dallas. After staking out Thelma, this was right after they talked to him. They noticed that he called her right after they had talked to him. This,
1: these two that are tracking it, are they, what are they again? Are they feds or are they...
0: They are right now, they're just... So Paul Forbes was with, was with Murray Police okay. and Dick Forbes was with the Utah or Salt Lake County uh, Attorney's Office.
1: Gotcha. So they're going, like they're, they're really going for this here. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So,
0: so they went to Dallas and after staking out Thelma's house, Nancy was seen living in a pickup truck. She was pulled over and questioned about the gun. When she could provide no real good answer, she was arrested and she was extradited to Salt Lake City on the suspicion of murder. But when, her, but when her neighbors told police that she was really in Denver at the time of the murder, police realized she was not one of the killers, but believed she was a co-conspirator. Ervil's downfall only picked up pace from there and i really wish we could get into the full details of how police were able to get to Delphina uh, ervel's first wife to spill on the cold and what led her there because it's just a really sad and harrowing chapter and it involves her finding out about rebecca and it's just so sad it made me like i made me want to cry reading it it's just yeah. a sad um but for now basically it um I'm going to give you the spark notes. Delfina believed she was next to be blood atoned and because she was asking about Rebecca all the time. And so she, when she found out that Rebecca was murdered, she waited for an opportunity to escape with her daughter, uh, to escape her daughter Lillian and Mark Chinowitz's house, which again, spark notes version. Lillian was like, mom, you keep this shit up, you're going to die. Because Lillian was way more uh, faithful to mm. Um So she waited for an opportunity to escape their Dallas house and she took it. She took her 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 daughter with her, her young uh, daughter Delia. She then went to a bus station and was heading out for El Paso. And while she waited, she called her mother, who, um, so Alicia, uh, Rebecca's sister, she had put on investigators to Delphina. She said, "You might want to talk to my mom," because uh, Alicia was not part of the cult. She had left and was part of another fundamentalist group. But she was like, "You might want to talk to my mom." So police were like, "Where the fuck is Delphina? We need to find Delphina." So they were that night that Delfina calls her mom, police are already at her literally at her mom's house in like in like uh interviewing her oh, wow. and her mom's like hello and she's like holy shit it's my daughter and they're like oh fuck it like let us talk to her and she tells police uh everything that just happened and they're mm-hmm. like like go to El Paso we're going to pick you up. Right. So she gets on the bus, the minute she gets to El Paso there's a secret service agent waiting for her and they bring her to Utah.
1: I will say, and I don't, I mean, obviously we're getting the, the highlights of this, but it does <clears throat> yeah. seem like police are doing a very good job right now.
0: They're doing a great job. This is one of those cases where I'm like, man, great job, police. Uh, she told investigators everything. Uh, that Rena and Ramona had been the ones to carry out the killing with the male squad and that Rebecca had been killed by the cult as well. She asked investigators to get her other two children, 14-year-old Isaac and 9-year-old Pablo, because uh, they were still at... Uh, I think they were at Lillian and Mark's house um, after obtaining a court order for custody, uh, and she had more kids with Ervil, but these were the only two that were still young that she was like are still worth are going to be able to be saved because Lillian right. and, and Arturo were also her kids, but she was like they're too, they're, they're like they're basically too far
1: adults gone. who have decided yeah. yeah yeah yeah.
0: So anyway, investigators they got a court order for custody of the boys. They go to Dallas and they pick them up. Um, Dick Forbes, Paul Paul's brother, was happy about this because he he rightfully believed that Isaac might be privy to some helpful information so dick forbes went to work on isaac but found it very difficult he believed that isaac genuinely was terrified of his father's murderous retribution after the after this ordeal delfina suffered a mental breakdown and was admitted to a utah hospital the boys were placed into foster homes isaac's family his foster family reported that the boy was so afraid that he would sleep under the bed every night. At this time, Dick found another helpful piece of information. The name Patty Sanders at the Lone Pine Motel, a name that he suspected was an alias. Patty had said she was driving a Mercury station wagon with the Utah plates MH044. And this is so... This is where I would insert the clip of Daniel Craig saying, It's so dumb. It's so dumb. It's brilliant no it's just dumb so she she said the plate is mh 044 but when they looked that plate up it was registered to a volkswagen and after some variations and i honestly want to believe that it was one variation dick discovered that the real plate was mh 054 oh my god it was one number off she fucking only changed one number
1: dumb It's so dumb. It's so dumb, it's brilliant. No! It's just dumb.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, and they discovered that it belonged to Leland Bud Chinowith, Rena's father. After Nancy was released, because prosecutors didn't want to waste their investigation by taking such a minor figure to trial, Isaac finally opened up. He told them he was present at the attack on Los Molinos, that he had heard cult members talk about the death of Robert Simons and Dean Vest, and that he had been present for the meeting in which his father planned the double murder Utah mission. Which is really funny because, again, I skipped over it, but in that meeting, Ervil asked all the kids to leave, and then, you know, Isaac gets up to go, and and he's like, no, not you, son. You're old enough for this. (laughs) So just by a fucking pure, like, happenstance, this kid
1: happened to... Yeah, he was able to break this case for him.
0: Mm -hmm. So he gave them all the names they needed and pointed police to Jack Strothman investigators desperately set out to find jack and they found him pumping gas in indiana when investigators approached jack with their hands on their weapons because they're thinking you know this guy's part of the skull he's dangerous jack just looked at them and then he smiled and said
1: boy am i glad to see you guys
0: (laughs) which is he's like thank god i was waiting for y'all like (laughs) it's just so funny to me that he's just like cool
1: What took you guys so long? I've been trying to tell you guys. I've been telling everybody I've met.
0: So he then proceeded to sing, as we like to say in the true crime biz. Mm. Based on the testimonies of Isaac and Jack, police compiled a list of over 20 cult members wanted for questioning in connection to the murder of Rulon C. Allred. And they sent it out across the country, this list. By mid-September, Dave Yokum, the Salt Lake deputy county attorney assigned to the Allred case, felt it was finally time to move against the church of the lamb of god and he filed a variety of criminal charges against 11 cult members arturo lebaron victor nancy mark and rena Chinoweth, don and john sullivan eddie and ramona marston and ervil m lebaron
1: hell yeah fuck em up that began a manhunt for his killers in several western states and mexico to date four people have been charged in the case and
0: more being sought despite the fact that it was a massive effort the operation only yielded four cult members victor and mark Chinowith, lloyd sullivan and ramona marston and nancy would surrender herself to authorities days later after a preliminary hearing in which isaac's testimony helped the case drastically the judge released nancy but bound over the other four for trial and one by one they all began to fall but away.
1: Nancy's the one who bought the gun, right?
0: Yeah, but they were like, uh, yeah, you didn't really like...
1: It was probably... So, that's it. It, it could have just been that someone was like, hey, go buy a gun, and she was like, all right.
0: Well, that's literally... I mean, like, she knew that it was for this, but they were just like, Yeah, gotcha. but you didn't you know, play as big of a part. Gotcha. Um, one by one, they all began to fall away. Lloyd was quiet at first, but his doubt and disillusionment ate away at him. After the Utah mission he had done some soul-searching, some, soul some soul searching,
1: Some soul-searching.
0: And now believed that Ervil was not the one mighty and strong, but the son of perdition. <gasps> I do love the son of perdition. That's a sick-ass name. That's a pretty good, yeah. Um, after posting bail, he returned to the Denver stronghold and began to pass on information to the police. At this point, in the fall of 1977, law enforcement agencies throughout the Southwestern United States and nine regional FBI offices were working on the case. The American embassy in Mexico city had met with Mexican officials and stressed the importance of finding Ervil. They pretty much were like, cause a couple of years after this would be the murder of that, um, uh, Tiki, Kiki, the DEA agent that was like, he was, he'd gone undercover. I think it's one of the seasons of Narcos is based on him. Oh, okay. yeah, Yeah. Um, and this is like when the us started getting serious with mexico and was like hey stop fucking taking bribes right we need these criminals
1: look 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 we're starting to die
0: <laughs> yeah which I, is pretty we yeah, this, don't
1: care a whole lot about what you guys want to do but you mm. can't let us die
0: so in early february of 1978 lloyd wrote to don and john telling them
1: i led you to this man because i was sincere and was truly deceived by him. Now let me lead you away from him and his bloody tenure. I testify to you in the name of the Lord God of Israel that from all that I can find through prayer, research and study, this man is Satan. Kind of sick, <laughs> also, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but Ervil sounds a lot like evil, <laughs> which I'm starting to think could be because he's saying my favorite
0: joke of this entire series is just people being like, Wait a second, Ervil's only one letter off from evil.
1: You th- they're just like, There's like the letters are there, and it's just them slowly putting like one finger over R and just being like, ha, 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 Oh my ha, god, oh no. <laughs>
0: He also met with Verlin, which was a big deal, in a Denver lobby and told him everything he knew. He apologized for everything that had happened. And Verlin would go on to say that he was like, I get the sense of this man like finally woke up Mm. and felt that he needed to apologize to heaven and I was the closest thing that he could get to. So he just went to me and was like, hey, man. Because the next day...
1: That's a little full of yourself, Ervil. I oh, think he was apologizing I, to again, you because remember, you were the target of the murder.
0: You also have to remember Verlin also the, believed he was the one mighty instructor.
1: Right. Not because he's not apologizing to you because you're the closest thing to Jesus he can find. I think he was just like, he's hey, man, like, we almost killed hey, you. I'm man, sorry. We almost killed you, and I'm sorry. And he's like, my That's son, right. my child, don't worry about it. God and forgives like, all. And he's like, no, uh, I'm not saying you're God. Okay. I'm you know what? I don't care. Fine. I'm sick of you fucking LeBarons. I hate you guys so much.
0: There's so many of them around, too. Uh, um, uh, Bones guy was telling me that uh, his coworker dated a LeBaron and wow. she was like a direct descendant. Of of erval's like family of that group of LeBarons, right, yeah, yeah. there's so many in Utah. I've met many like LeBarons, not like known them, but like known of them. It's right. just insane. That's crazy. Uh, but again, also they each had like fucking fifteen wives and like right. seven hundred kids or whatever. Yeah. So, <clears throat> the next day, uh, Lloyd did the same with police. He told them everything. Don and John were picked up, and although he was reluctant at first, Don sang too. It took a little over an hour for Dick Forbes to break the military commander of the one mighty and strong. He goes to Don and, and Don had good reasons for not wanting to open up. His whole thing was like, dude, they took my wife. They took my kid. Mm. Like I, I'm afraid. And, and, and Dick was very, um, inspiring and was like, dude, if you let them win, then you know, like if you, if you let them, then they'll just like, if you let them take this from you as well, then they'll have won. But if you have hope, right. Then, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Lloyd would also provide our old pal T. Wayne Fowler, the investigator from uh, National City who was investigating Vonda for the murder of Dean Vest, he would provide him with the necessary information he needed to drop murder charges against Vonda White and Ervil LeBaron for the murder of Dean Vest. He also led authorities to the murder site of Robert Simons, where an excavation crew found his body and his status was changed from missing person to homicide victim. So Lloyd is becoming the center of this investigation. A right. very important person. Yeah. Murder charges were levied against Eddie Marston, Mark Chinoweth, and Ervil LeBaron for that murder. The same day, police raided a safe house in Denver and arrested Vonda White. She was taken to National City to be put on trial. While taking the stand in San Diego, Lloyd testified about the murders of Noemi Zarate and Rebecca LeBaron, because the judge believed Lloyd would certainly be killed by the Lamb of God, and this may be their only chance to hear his testimony on those killings. The prosecution's case rested on Lloyd Sullivan as he had direct knowledge of all the killings and his culpability was minimal, not to mention he had a keen eye for detail. Cuz Don and Eddie and those other guys, they became or like Don and and Jack, they became they were helping the prosecution as well, but it's hard for a jury to 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 to, to see them as help as helpful when they were like played a major part in the crime you know what i mean most of the time those witnesses don't help you out at all right the prosecution teams in san diego price and salt lake city all counted on lloyd but on may 25th 1978 in a cruel stroke of misfortune lloyd sullivan dropped dead as a result of a heart attack Mm. So the prosecution teams moved on to Isaac LeBaron.
1: If there's any uh, more proof that God exists and is pr- protecting, protecting Herbal, Herbal LeBaron, LeBaron is I think this is it, yeah.
0: So they then moved on to Isaac LeBaron, who would spend the next, a 14-year-old boy, remember, who mm. would spend the next two years in protective custody under an assumed name, shuttled from safe house to safe house, fearing his father's vengeance through it all.
1: Okay, and I was going to, I was, I gonna, feel for this I was boy, just going to say, I wanted to, you know, because I can imagine him just being like, uh oh but also that's very sad and very fucked up and later
0: on he has a he has a really poignant moment where he's like i just want to be a kid man i just want to have a life
1: right yeah uh
0: frustratingly enough mexican officials would come so fucking close to getting ervil when they raided a ranch where ervil rena and dan jordan were hiding out in 1978 dan had spread a story beginning in 1975 that he had been killed in a shootout with mexican police uh, so a lot of people thought he was dead. He faked his death. Okay. Uh, but American law enforcement was like, no, 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 he's alive. We know he's alive. There's uh, no evidence they, of that. He's yeah, just they passed he's the lying. information on to Mexican police. But apparently the Mexican police that arrest that raided the ranch never got the news. So when they show up, they arrested Rena And, and then they, they thought they believed,
1: Irvil was dead?
0: No, so Dan Jordan had faked his death.
1: So they show oh, up
0: okay. and, they, and they're like identifying all of them. And Dan Jordan's like, Well, my name's Dan Jordan. And they're like, That's no, Dan Jordan is dead. So you're clearly Ervil a Baron and you're trying to pretend to be Dan Jordan so you can escape. And the man that's claiming to be er- Ervil a Baron is clearly just a fake. So they took Dan and Rena thinking they had Ervil what and then when they realized
1: the (laughs) fuck would you not
0: take if a man is like yes just bring him along we can
1: decide if he's faking later that's not a call to make in the fucking field so
0: they get to the jail or whatever and american law enforcement's like no dan jordan that's dan jordan and they're like oh shit so they run back to the uh, to the ranch and ervil's just gone He's fucking left.
1: That was more frustrating than I even expected it to be. I it's thought they so would annoying, show man. up and they're like, "What's your name?" and he'd be like, "My name's
0: Orville LeBaron." Orville LeBaron. Le
1: and they're like, "All right, get out of here." The fact that he was like, nah, "I'm Erlo, I'm Orville LeBaron," you <laughs> caught me. And they're like, "Shut up, nerd! Get the fuck out of here! Let's go, everybody!" <laughs> oh God, damn it.
0: So things soured for the prosecuting teams without Lloyd. Vonda's trial was deemed a mistrial because it, it really, again, details were leaving out, but basically the judge was kind of a bitch. And okay. the judge was like, I don't like that you're making this a theatrical thing is to this, the prosecution. Is this in Utah? No, this one was in, in San Diego area. Oh, uh, okay, okay. And the judge was like, I don't like that you're being so dramatic and making this like a movie. And the the prosecutor was like, that's the only way I'm going to convince the jury is if I play this out like a movie.
1: I'm just and, doing my job.
0: Yeah, it was, well, uh, shut the, up. So, Get so out of here. The, guy, the, the, the prosecutor was like, he basically later on in interviews was like, no, the judge only declared a mistrial because he thought he was a better lawyer than me and he didn't like the way I was doing it. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> That's what it seems like. But the prosecutor, he actually managed to, to, to clinch a retrial. Uh, okay. Eddie's trial ended with a jury deciding on a not guilty charge based on the testimonies given. So that was one for the killing of Bob Simons in Price, Utah. Okay. Uh, despite Isaac's strong testimony in the all red murder case, the prosecution was in trouble. Jack and the Sullivan's were co-conspirators, and none of the witnesses could positively identify Rena as a shooter, and the weapons were never found. So the defense team was cunning. And at the time, Rena was pregnant with her second child and they used the pregnancy to their advantage and played her up as a clean cut, upstanding citizen who would never ever do this. She's from a good family. Why would she do this? And the jury was like, okay. But they never saw the Rena who, while she was sitting in prison, was writing letters boasting about the fame she was getting, right. writing letters talking about how she wanted to fucking kill other inmates because they were bitches. Right. They never saw that. They just saw like a clean cut, like, oh, I'm a good. Not to and, mention um, the fact
1: that you're like, now nah, she's obviously fine, while a 14-year-old is like, I'm terrified of my dad. He's going to murder like, me. they're uh, like, shut up.
0: Shut the fuck up, you pussy. You suck. <laughs> so on March 20th, 1979, after four hours of deliberation, all four defendants were acquitted of all charges against him. Rena and Thelma went to a pub to celebrate before rushing over to a local news station for an interview. And we'll have to get, I think, into this next episode. Mm-hmm. Rena would then go on to write a book about this whole ordeal. And it's one of those if it's like the 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 what were the Ken and Barbie killers names? Uh Oh fuck. Fucking um. but anyway, it's kinda like how Barbie of the two, mm-hmm. she like was like, I was just a little old Quarced victim. And it's like, no, but you this. actually fucking did shit though, right? And that's how I but feel about like, Rena, where yeah, she wrote this book, okay. where she was like, "I was brought in." And I'm like, "I know you are a victim in some sense, but I'm also like, you also did it though, right? Yeah, and celebrated it, and right. so I don't know. But it was not all bad news at Vonda White's retrial. Gary Rempel, the the prosecuting attorney, he revamped his case against the woman he called an angel of death. And as he gave his closing army arguments, he wheeled around and pointed a finger at Vonda and said under her serene and mild countenance is the heart of an assassin. And the jury agreed. After less than three hours they found Vonda White guilty of the murder of Dean Vest. Vonda would simply stare ahead and blink as the verdict was read. She was given life in prison and the law had finally caught up to the Lamb of God and on June 1st 1979, Ervil LeBaron made the walk across the bridge in Laredo from Mexico to the U.S. Meanwhile, one of the wives of Herbal LeBaron is awaiting sentencing on a murder charge. Vonda White was scheduled for sentencing today in San Diego, but Ms. White was found guilty of murdering Dean Grover Vest, a man police say tried to pull out of Herbal LeBaron's religious cult. Around noon, on Friday, June 1st, 1979, two Mexican police officers led a bruised and limping middle-aged man across the International Bridge in Laredo to the doors of the U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Service building. There... Two FBI agents were waiting for him, where they took him inside and read him his rights before taking him out to a car and transporting him to Webb County Jail. This was the first time that Ervil M. LeBaron was arrested in the United States.
1: How did they catch him?
0: It's funny that you ask. So the way that Ervil was handed over was, so one of the things you have to understand is there's a, so Eddie and Reno were also handed over in a similar way. Involves a vast network of underground law enforcement operations between the U.S. and Mexico right. that are better left for another episode. Sure. But the short version is that officially, U.S. officials simply said Ervil was caught crossing the border illegally and detained him because they couldn't get extradition in time because they were afraid extradition he would just buy off the judges again, right? Okay. So he was caught after he was spotted by some people and tried to escape Mexico City. He was caught in the mountains near Mexico City on May 25th by Mexican officials with his fifth wife, Lorna, and then was used as a punching bag for the next six days. Fair. Uh, Dick Forbes, Gary Pembler, and T. Wayne Fowler. But also, Anderson kind of implies that maybe the Mexican government knew where he was and maybe the... like. Irville had been buying his time off and maybe the money ran out and they finally were like okay we're just going to turn you in. Mm. Um because again we don't really know how they found him. We just know that they were faultly they were pers- pursuing him and then they got him but we don't know what led to the pursuit. We don't know how that
1: Gotcha. All okay. got there. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um so Dick Forbes, Gary Pembler, T Wynn Fowler, they rushed down to Texas. They want to speak with a fucking guy that has taken the last 2 years of their lives. Um and Forbes especially he was like, I know Ervil's weakness. I know how to talk to this guy. It's his ego. So he goes in and he's like, hey, man, are you really the prophet of God? And Ervil's like, <laughs>
1: Buddy, am I the prophet I of God? The- Does a bear uh, shit in the woods?
0: <laughs> pretty much, and he goes on to tell him about his duties and how the U.S. government is committing criminal acts by impeding his mission. And he tells him that, yes, I wrote all the publications that the church has published for the past decade, which is bad because now his defense can't be like those are written by someone else because those right. are the same publications that are like, we're going to kill you, you right, know? Yes. So he spoke with them for several hours. And then he's like, okay, I'll talk to you again tomorrow. And then they show up, they're like, hey, Irvill buddy. And he's like, actually, I'm not talking to you. And they're like, okay. And he's like, I'm not going to talk to you without an attorney present. And he gets up and he goes to leave. But Fowler just like incredibly just kind of like in the moment did a psychological evaluation of him and was like, wait a second. When Irville pulled up and he was with those FBI agents, he was being really nice to them and like seemed like he was kind of afraid of them. And he's thinking like, I know this guy's a bully. Maybe we can bully this bully. And so when he gets up to go, uh, Fowler's like, you're not excused. And Ervil, like, stops and he's like, huh? And he's like, look, man, you can sit here and shut up, not say anything, but you're not free to leave. Like, we excuse you. So you're going to sit and listen to us, uh, and that's just how it's going to be, which is a bluff. He uh, he he you know he was, right. but Ervil was like, oh, okay, sorry. It's and he also, sits down. It
1: is fucked up that police are allowed to do that, but yeah. – also, I mean, I'm glad they did it to this guy. Yeah, Fuck
0: him. But he, like, they said that he, like, his demeanor changed and he was like, Oh, I'm sorry. And mm-hmm. he, like, sits down and they're like, Okay. So then he's, they they spend the next hour and a half explaining the case they have built against him. And Irville's like, I'm not talking without a lawyer. And then they're like, Cool. They get their shit. They go to leave. And they're like, All right, well, then this is settled then. And he's like, wait, 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 wait. And then he tells them this
1: I listened very carefully to what you said. I think it's only fair that now that i've listened to you you listen to me i don't want to talk about certain things but i do want to tell you some things that may help you understand
0: which listeners if you're ever in the situation just shut up just don't talk look do I not don't... do not be like hey listen no way you need to learn you need to understand this which yeah. again if you committed any crime i don't want to know i don't want to know yeah. but i'm just saying as a general rule of
1: it doesn't if law, you're innocent don't, don't talk. talk to cops. And, and I guess what?
0: Guess what? This, 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 this is important because you will you will tell the cops. You will say, actually, I don't want to talk until I get an attorney. And you know what the cops are going to say to you? Only guilty people get an attorney. That's not true. They're trying to get you to say incriminating shit. Yep. Innocent people get attorneys all the time. Yes. Do not talk to them until your attorney is present.
1: Do okay. not talk. Don't talk to cops. Don't, don't talk, talk to, to cops. Don't, don't talk, talk to them.
0: them. Please, everybody listening, go learn your rights. Please, it is important.
1: It's hard. I get it. I don't know him extensively. Uh, Just keep in mind, all you need to remember is don't talk to cops. Don't talk to them. When when you have an attorney present, that's fine. But until you have an attorney, don't talk to cops.
0: Don't do it. He then spoke about his law of liberty, and specifically about false prophets and their punishment of death. And when they asked him if this punishment was to be administered now or in the afterlife... He was like, "No, no, no! It has to be administered here on this earth during this lifetime." No, you but, have
1: to kill. Uh, you have to uh,
0: uh, take No, so they're it, it was more like he was like, "Yeah, you have to kill him now." And then they were like, "Oh, is this what you did to Allred?" And he's like, I-, oh,
1: "I see what you're doing." You tricky, tricky pigs.
0: So yeah, so that's pretty much what happened. Fowler says that Irvin was cunning and he caught onto their strategy quickly. So he spoke to them for three whole days, rambling about his theology and belief system, but he would avoid talking about certain things. But it was still, it was a huge help to them because they got a huge understanding of this guy. They were like, oh shit, okay, we get this guy. Right. We kind of get him now. Um, Arturo, his his oldest son, I think, he was eventually picked up in Guatemala and extradited to the US where he joined his father in Utah. And there's a kind of a funny quote where they pick him up in Miami and he's like, you can't hold me here. You can't bring me here. I'm I'm technically a Mexican citizen. And they were like, cool. You're being tried for a crime in the U.S. though. So that doesn't All right. <laughs> mean it. Like, we're not going to send you back to Mexico. It's not how it works. Buddy. I'm
1: allowed to commit crimes in any country I'm not a citizen of.
0: And they're like, actually, no, no that's not, not how that works.
1: Diplomatic <laughs> <So>
0: then, <laughs> immunity. You're not a diplomat, though. I'm not. <laughs> no. But my dad's the leader of a church that's not. How that works. Uh,
1: religious freedom.
0: <laughs> Idiots. Suck it, bitch.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: They just tase him. Ow. Ow. Ervil found that even in his most loyal disciples, they were falling away. The Chinowiths offered little financial support, and he was forced to petition for his representation. He couldn't afford the really smart attorneys that the others had gotten, because he had no money. And the Chinowiths were like, look, man, we'll send you some money, but we're not... We're, we're not going to pay we're, for
1: that. We're cl- I'm guessing we're batting down the hatches on our own house Pretty right much. now. Yeah.
0: On January 15th, 1980, Ervil and Arturo were led into a Salt Lake courtroom for preliminary hearing on the charges against them, first-degree murder in connection with the slaying of Rule on C. Allred, and attempted murder stemming from the plot to kill Verlin LeBaron, as well as two accompanying counts of conspiracy. For two days, Dave Yoakam brought forth witnesses, with the star being Isaac LeBaron. Isaac kept his head down, and for two hours, told of the time he heard his father call for blood atonement and dispatch his followers to carry it out. At the end of the hearing, Ervil was ordered to stand, trial for murder, and attempted murder. The judge would dismiss all charges against Arturo, deciding there was little evidence to link him to the double murder mission in Utah. As Arturo was being led out of the courtroom, Ervil pulled him aside and told him,
1: I got I got this one. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Obviously, I don't. <laughs> I was like, oh, you can go crazy. It's Spanish.
0: Go ahead. So he pull, pulls him aside and he says, Encuentra tu hermano y habla con él. Which means, find your brother and talk to him. And there was a bilingual uh, translator y who heard that.
1: Encuentra a tu hermano
0: y habla like con él. I do like to think that despite the fact that Ervil grew up in Mexico, he was he just spoken uh, Spanish like that. Yeah. Me llamo Ervil a baron. Y- ¿Cómo se dice you are going to die?
1: Eh. Don't they start la like biblioteca? Teca. <laughs> Teca.
0: Well, anyway, so, so a bilingual translator heard that, and he was like, uh, hey, what the fuck? And he told police, and that night Isaac was moved to a new location in Salt Lake, and more policemen were assigned to protect him. That's good. Isaac was now convinced that his father had him marked for death. The defense argued that the true leaders of the church were Lloyd and Don Sullivan, which only an idiot would believe, but whatever. And Erval was nothing more than a theologian and a student of the Bible and Mormon scripture. Um, When he took the stand, Isaac, now 17, was under intense strain and, you know, he was no longer testifying against former friends, but he was testifying against his father, a person that he feared more than anyone in this world. And he was really nervous. His voice was above a whisper. uh, And the prosecution was like, fuck, like we need this kid to, to to like speak up because otherwise they're not going to believe his testimony and then when they asked him about his current life that's when he started speaking really eloquently and he told the jury that he was under pressure from both sides and he was sick of all the trials that he just wanted a normal life he wanted to go to college to have a girlfriend and not live a life of constant fear and anxiety and it fucking worked Uh, they also got Verlin Esther and cousin Conway to testify as well And remember, all the way back to, like, I think the second or third episode, Esther testified how she had hid under an open window in August of 1971 and had heard Ervil speak of his plans for murder. Mm. While the judge suppressed many of the details of Ervil's three-day conversation with Forbes, Forbes also was, was, was allowed to reveal that Ervil had admitted to being the prophet of the Church of the Lamb of God and also the author of its publications, which called for violence and made threats against other fundamentalists. So the defense were like, fuck. And they brought up a bunch of witnesses too, but they wisely did not put Ervil on the stand. God damn it. I would have loved that. As Dave Yocum would state, they knew that if he got up there, he wouldn't lie. He would tell everyone that he was the chosen one and that he had to wipe out all the other fundamentalists and he would just incriminate himself. So on May 28th, The jury left the courtroom to consider their verdict, and after three hours, they decided that on the charge of first-degree murder and on the charge of conspiracy to commit murder, Ervil Morrell LeBaron was guilty. Yay. Ervil did not react as the verdict was read. Lorna, his fifth wife, rose from the spectator's gallery with tears in her eyes. Dick Forbes and Dave Yoakum leapt up and hugged each other, and Ervil simply turned towards them, looked at them, and smiled. (laughs) this hour, polygamous leader and murder suspect Erval LeBaron is in Utah, but he has been hiding out in Mexico. Ten days ago, however, Mexican authorities turned
1: him over to U.S. authorities, and he's been awaiting removal to Utah until today.
0: Frustratingly, Erval, which, you know, frustrating for the situation, he escaped the death penalty mm. um, because both the prosecution and the defense asked for the jury to be sequestered, uh, to be taken away before sentencing because so they had given the verdict, but now they had to decide on sentencing. Right. Um, but Judge Baldwin was like, no, they can go home. It's fine. And Siegfried Widmar, he just wanted help, um, but he was one of those guys that's like, it's f- you're going to make things worse if you help because uh, he wanted to print out a bunch of shit and like publicize the the whole ordeal, and the prosecution was like, "Hey, please don't fucking do that, because that's going to be considered like witness mm-hmm. tampering, and like we don't need that." Right. Um. So he, the day after the hearing, or, or the day of the hearing, he's on the steps and he gives an interview where he says the charges against Irvin are just the tip of the iceberg, and he's guilty of seven more killings. And two jurors actually caught wind of that. So the defense claimed prejudice before sentencing, so the judge had a choice mm. to either assemble another jury, who would then have to rehear the past two weeks, or he could just pass sentencing himself, but because under Utah law, only a jury can give the death sentence, Baldwin sentenced Ervil to life in prison. Which is still fine. I mean, yeah, you know, I that's, mean, it's I'll better, take that.
1: I'd rather this guy get life in prison than an innocent man get put to death. You know what I yeah. mean? Not that that's the options here. I'm just saying that, like...
0: Yeah, no. Yeah. yeah, I'm not super pro-death penalty. Right. And that afternoon, Ervil was taken to Point of the Mountain State Prison in Draper, which I actually toured when I was 17 uh, for a leadership camp. You were in, like, Scam good... Strait? No, they were like, you, ah, They maybe. were like, Jose's, like... He, Jose, like, you're going to jail. <laughs>
1: yeah, they're, Jose's a Jose's For dentist. your podcasting crimes. And I was yeah. like, yeah, We're sick of you uh with your student uh what are you student councilman or some yeah. shit yeah yeah for nerd
0: crimes and then they just threw me in a cell
1: <laughs> you're going to jail for laughed. being a fucking nerd
0: so little by little nerd i don't like that you've been reading my diary well i little don't like little. that <laughs> i
1: don't like that you keep sending me your diary an email
0: It's more for, like, revisions and and editorial notes, but Okay,
1: well, I'm still going to have to read. Never mind. Let's just get back to it.
0: (laughs) Little by little, his disciples fell away. Rena had Dan Jordan, the presiding bishop of the cult, annul her marriage with Ervil, and she began a relationship with Eddie Marston. Ervil's mental illness that had plagued him his whole life made a surprise reappearance, which we love that. Yeah. We love that. He would stay up for three or four days, orating to other inmates or himself, Guards would find him scribbling away on papers, doing endless push-ups on his cell floor. He also became deeply depressed and would sit and stare at his wall for hours with no response. Been there. He was transferred. Yeah, yeah, been there. He was transferred to the prison hospital for treatment for depression, and it seemed that he also kind of became suicidal at this point because he tried to drown himself in a toilet <laughs> by holding his own head down, and then also asked the warden because Utah is, I guess, one of the only states that still does killing by firing squad. At least at the time of the writing of the book. I haven't checked. They might still do it. I wouldn't put it past them. Uh, But he asked the warden to be killed by a firing squad uh, because he had masturbated in his cell. And that was a sin. And his blood now had to be spilled.
1: Warden? I jerked off in my cell because you shoot me in the head.
0: Huh. Well, mm, buddy. I would love to. But the liberals say I can't.
1: I came so hard.
0: No, okay i didn't really need to i
1: came i just know the
0: details i
1: did this thing where i sat on my hand until it went mm, numb i've been there and done that and then i spit on my own dick and then i i, I just i just jerked it until I, i've never come so hard in my entire life and now i want to die hmm. not because i committed a sin warden mind you i want to die because i know that in my entire rest of my life i will never come as hard as i came in that cell it's over.
0: Alright, boys, get the guns.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: He did have moments of lucidity and he began to plan for his ministry to continue on. He began to work because he was kind of accepting that he would never leave. Uh he I mean he believed that like God would strike down the walls of the prison like the walls of Jericho and he would walk out, but also at the same time he was like, Yeah, I'm not fucking I'm not getting out of this one. Or maybe
1: it's a test From God.
0: Yeah. And then the other Uval is like or maybe I'm just in jail. <laughs> maybe I'm just going to stay here.
1: No, I'm not in jail. Yes, you are, Ervil. No, I'm not, Ervil. Yes, you are. Hey, and is, hey, excuse me, Ervil. Hey, shut the fuck up. Dude, <laughs> just we're the, trying the, the, to sleep. The crazy
0: guy next to him being like, hey, man, shut the fuck up.
1: Are you talking to me or Ervil?
0: Oh, my God. I wish I would have ripped my own ears out. Uh, so that guy was in jail for ripping other people's ears <laughs> off. That was the implication there. <laughs> yeah, I got that. So Good he did a character moments, work. Uh, thanks. So he he began to to work on the book of new covenants. When in April, this was like his new uh, manuscript. Uh uh-huh. In April of 1980, it was discovered that Errol was gaining followers in his cell block, so he was moved to a solitary confinement cell block, and um. He also had Arturo try and rally his old loyalists and threaten them with destruction if they left the cult. And in response, Dan Jordan and the Chinowets went to Dick Forbes and were like, <laughs> hey, he's uh, fucking threatening us. And Dick Forbes showed up and was like, Ervil, I swear to God, man, what? if you don't stop, I will rally up all your sons that are still out there and I will throw them in the same fucking jail as you. And he was like, oh shit, okay. Oh. <laughs> My bad. Dick, so Irville, I'm
1: sorry, I just wanted to keep my church going i didn't mean to cause you no fuss
0: yeah well look man you've done it okay
1: hey can we talk talk to that guy who ripped those ears out he's actually Mm -hmm. been kind of we've been hanging out more lately and i got him to make me some turlet wine do you want some
0: Okay, Ervil. I'm gonna suggest to them that you be placed in the hole, and then they throw. No, you
1: the key. no. I've made so okay. many fall. I Bye. mean, friends here. Fuck.
0: So he he, uh, he urged his loyal sons to leave Utah with a final blessing, and most of them would leave uh, for Phoenix on the evening of August fifteenth, nineteen eighty one. Ervil was writing to Vonda White and told her he would not see here, see her, again on this earth, but that they would be reunited. In a heavenly place, at 2:20 a.m. on Sunday, August 16th, a guard making the rounds peeked into Errol's cell and found him doing push-ups. Three hours later, one. He was two, three. And then the, the four. guard walks by. He's like, three thousand and five.
1: <laughs> three thousand and six. Three thousand 3,005 and fuck my arms tired. And then are the,
0: tired. The, gu- <laughs> the guard walks by. He's like,
1: oh fuck. Oh, Erbil, I told you to do your workouts.
0: So three hours later, he was found lying motionless on the ground with his left hand clenched at his throat. And I had to look it up because at first, the first time I read it, I thought maybe he died of a heart attack. They believe it was an apparent suicide. They believe that he either overdosed on drugs or he just choked himself out to death. Shut
1: the fuck up.
0: Uh, so, look, I'll read to you from... This is from an okay. article of the Times uh, yeah. written on August 17th, 1981. It says It's titled, Irville LeBaron, Utah Polygamist Found Dead in His Prison Cell. And it says here, Detective Earl Julian said that Mr. LeBaron may have taken an overdose of drugs or that he may have suffocated after striking himself in his throat with his fists. The man's throat was damaged. And uh, Anderson doesn't like say, like, yeah, this is the the the... the Cause of death or anything, so I had to look it up, and I'm pretty sure that he just strangled himself to death or crushed his own windpipe somehow. Um, I
1: guess if you, I guess yeah, if you punched your, you could crush. You could do windpipe it. Windpipe, if you just. It just takes a lot of like brain
0: power to get yourself there to be to overcome. But, that. I, but I guess, I guess if, you're if
1: you're a cult leader who's ordered yeah. the murder of
0: multiple you're people, also, well, you could probably you're also you're also mentally ill as yeah. well. So. Yeah. At the age of 56, Ervil Morell LeBaron the one mighty and strong prophet of the Church of the Lamb of God, was dead. Verlin LeBaron had just finished his book detailing the LeBaron saga and was in Puebla, Mexico, the morning of August 16th. He was making the 150-mile drive to Mexico City with two firstborners when a car on the other side of the highway lost control and collided head-on with a firstborner's vehicle. Verlin LeBaron the one mighty and strong prophet of the church or the firstborn of the fullness of time <laughs> nice. was killed instantly. Thank, I, I mean, that's not of, nice that's that he died. That's kind of poignant. But I just, but, um,
1: I like, that was good writing on, remember, your, thank on you. your part.
0: And remember how at the beginning of this whole series, I talked about how there were a lot of weird coincidences within this family. Yeah. Ben, the first one to set all of this up, uh huh, also died on August 16th of a suicide. And Joel was killed August Twentieth or twenty-first, so all four of the brothers who claimed
1: they were the one,
0: they were the one mighty and strong, all died in the month of August, which is crazy coincidence.
1: That is fucking weird, yeah.
0: Yeah, Ervil was buried in uh, oh, what was the name of it? Rest Haven, a cemetery in uh, Houston. In attendance were three of his wives: Delphina, Anna Mae Marston, and Rosemary Barlow. Two dozen of his younger children in the former military arm of the cult, Mark, Duane, and Rena Chinoweth, Eddie, and Ramona Marston, uh, were there as well. Dan Jordan and Mark Chinoweth gave eulogies. His headstone reads, Beloved Father, Ervil M. LeBaron, February 22, 1926, to August fifteenth, 1981, which is a mistake. Um, some people reported that he had died on the 15th and Anna May was the one who had that uh, commissioned and Anderson says that she like, wrongfully believed that he died on the 15th, even though hmm. he did die on the 16th.
1: Ah, Also, weird Church, that they didn't put like the one mighty and strong on it.
0: I think it's because she barely scrapped together the money to get uh, those words on there.
1: Oh, fair enough.
0: The Mormon Church owned newspaper, the Deseret News, wrote an article detailing the case with the title, Deaths May End the LeBaron Saga. While it was a hopeful article, it was far off. In the last three months of his life, Ervil knew the end was coming. Before he ordered his sons to leave, he ordained Arturo, Patriarch of the Church. Progressive. And six more sons ordained high priests. What was that?
1: It's just progressive. Yeah. It's nice that he didn't pick one of his white kids.
0: He also gave them a blueprint to follow, the Book of New Covenants. The manuscript contained Ervil's usual ramblings, but it also contained a list of 50 or so people named as enemies of the faith by Ervil. It included police investigators, prison officials, and cult defectors. They were the Lord's chosen for blood atonement. Oh, no! And to no! Ervil's children, it was a mission given to them by their father from beyond the grave. No! A rallying war cry from a voice beyond the dust. And that is where we will pick up for the conclusion of the LeBaron family saga with the four o'clock murders, Mason, the title of this book. And it's wild. No! Even from beyond the grave. Remember how I told you at the beginning that this man was so interesting in terms of a cult leader because even from beyond the grave, He managed to have people killed. I thought we were done. It's insane. (laughs) So did I, Mason. Uh, So did I. But next episode will be our final part, the conclusion.
1: Fucking Mormons, man.
0: It is insane. With that, Mason, though, let's wrap the show up. If you like the show, everybody, please make sure to leave a five-star review, which you can do in-app on Apple Podcasts and now Spotify. Uh, we'd really appreciate it if you leave us a review. We have a 4.8 rating on Spotify. Woo! So thank you to all of you who have done it already. Let me double check real quick. Um, it'd be nice to get to a, uh, a 5.0, but you know, bikers can't be choosers. It's
1: true. Maybe a 4.0, uh, and, and even 4.9 would be a good compromise.
0: Yeah, we're at 4.8. Yeah. It's 12 reviews though, so that's good. That's not bad. I mean, bad. that means someone along the line didn't think we were five-point. That's a good point. Oh, but that's all right.
1: Yeah. Uh, you can support the show by going to patreon.com backslash captainslogcast and donate a dollar or whatever you want, as much as you want. Anything helps. Keeps the lights on, the the sound waves up, and the my hair died. Uh, you can also go to TeePublic. That's where most of the money goes, guys. It's my hair dye. Well, I've mm-hmm. got appearances to keep up. You can also go over to Public and shop our merch. Uh, click the link in our show notes and grab yourself anything with our handcrafted anything? design.
0: A gun, Mason? Can I buy a gun?
1: I'm not going to tell you no.
0: <laughs> and then Public is like, well, you're now offering guns on our website. Hey, that'd be kind of sick if somebody got a um, uh, Captain's Log branded gun. Kind of cool. I mean, you could just get a sticker and put it on there. Anyway, remember, if you donate such support, it all goes towards improving the show, getting better recording equipment, getting more hair dye for Mason, and it perhaps allows us to do this full-time, if not more part-time, so we don't take as many long breaks in between episodes.
1: It's, dude, it's uh, a hard knock life out there, all right? We're, we're figuring all, it out.
0: All I want to do is... Sit here and read spooky stories of crimes and ghosts. Same. But uh, but but adult life is like Jose. You need a job, and I'm like, yeah. damn it.
1: It doesn't get easier as you get older.
0: It does not. Mason, where can these fine little cult listeners of ours find you?
1: You can find me on Instagram at Mason Schrader, where you can see all my artwork that I do and all my graphic design stuff, and, and do you it. Can like it and follow me and, and do it. Tell me that you love me and please. That would be great.
0: You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at j. underscore junior. I post just stuff, just me being me. Uh, and Skeleton Dan and Mason make appearances here and
1: there sometimes.
0: Instagram. You can also find the show on uh, on on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok at Captain's Log Pod. We recommend various different materials on there. We post show updates, post funny little clips and spooky little clips. uh, So go check it out. You can also subscribe on YouTube where you can find me as Jose Vaya Jr., Animal Productions, and of course the show's official YouTube channel, Captain's Log. Uh, If you can't get enough of me, you can also listen to my other podcast with friend of the log, Max Benyon, called Max and Jose, have a little something to say, uh, which just released our final episode of season two. So go check it out. Mason's been on there. He will be on it again That is a promise.
1: Season three, Max, I'm coming for you and I'm going to hurt your feelings again. Three seasons in a row, I've come on there and said things to Max that he was like, I don't feel like we know each other well enough for you to say that to me, and I'm going to keep doing it because- And Mason
0: says, shut up, you fucking nerd. He
1: really, last time I was on there, he really was like, I feel like you don't know me well enough to say things like this to me, and I was like, I thought this was a podcast. What did you
0: say? What did you say? Like, I feel like you had silent reading.
1: Oh, you seemed like the type of kid that if we had a sleepover, you had like silent reading.
0: And it really hurt me. Max. Uh, he, I. It cut deep because he was like, damn, that does seem like something. It's I sad,
1: too, because I really like Max and I think he's great. We're I all variations have,
0: of each other. Max is just calm, tamer us.
1: Uh, yeah. We're like Country Mouse and City Mouse, but there's three of us and we're all different variations of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, Mouse. Uh, we're yeah. rats, but I'm a rat. We are
0: Yeah, I'm a rat, too
1: make sure to tell your friends and family about the show if you enjoy it and if you'd like to share your opinion on this case or uh, you have some insight or you have other cases please do so by writing to us at captainslogcast at gmail.com
0: you can also suggest episode topics guests you'd like to have back etc make sure to subscribe and download on apple Podcasts, spotify google play any other podcast directory thanks to carlos rivera for composing our brilliant shows theme we love it with that, everybody, we have reached the end of our show. We will see you soon for another episode. I have been your captain, Jose Valle Jr., joined by...
1: Mason Max Binion Schrader.
0: And this has been Captain's Log. End of transmission. Pew. Boop.